So the title of the talk this morning is Embracing Life, which we've referred to a number of times already. And it's how I render somewhat colloquially the um, first of the four tasks, that of Dukkha Parinya, literally comprehending Dukkha. Let's go back to where we left off yesterday evening and we looked at complete vision in terms of it being a perspective on life that is no longer tied to the categories such as being and non-being, is or is not. And we saw how that in practice leads us into a state of speechless uh, wonder in the face uh, of whatever is arising and passing in moment to moment. And in uh, Son or Zen practice, uh, this crystallizes into a question. You know, what is this? With a total... Uh, unconditional openness to the moment. And this is, for me, one of the many meanings of what it is to embrace life, to, to comprehend dukkha. That comprehend doesn't mean to acquire factual knowledge about or lots of information about at all. It has to do with entering into um, another uh, relationship to life, which we might, I think, more usefully think of as the cultivation of a sensibility, rather than the acquisition of uh, specific insights. And again, coming back to this idea of sama, rather than thinking of this as right view, Sama suggests, uh, again, a, a completeness, something holistic, a holistic sensibility uh, to the totality of our experience. My sense is that um, all forms of uh, meditation practice, at least within the Buddhist tradition, are different modalities of cultivating this, uh, this sensibility. I've written up on the board, for example, this uh, reflective meditation that we find in the Tibetan tradition, albeit um, given a secular spin by Bachelor. <laughs> uh, Reflecting on the certainty of death. Reflecting on the uncertainty of the time of death. Uh, this is not uh, a reflection that is uh, leading to uh, acquiring certain uh, information. It's about cultivating a sensibility. A sensibility to the, to, to the, the, the total experience of being human. We are, as Heidegger says, being toward death. 
that is our condition from the moment we are born. Aging, um, I remember my Tibetan teachers telling me, starts in moment two after moment, the first moment after birth, you start getting old. And it's relentless. It just goes on in its own totally naturalistic, organic way until it comes to an end. That's life. Every breath we take that we're aware of when we do anapanasati is one breath less that we will ever take. But of course we don't know when that will happen. It could be uh, in 20 years time. It could be tomorrow. It could be this afternoon. Uh, it's useful to bear in mind people that we know or knew of our own age um, who are no longer here. Uh, this year I had a number of uh, friends, uh, of some younger than me. Um, one had a massive heart attack while doing the gardening. Another was suddenly diagnosed with a stage four melanoma um, in the brain. Uh, she died uh, within a few weeks of that. Um, we all have these experiences and yet somehow we're not perhaps touched by them as profoundly as we should be. In other words, there is grief, there is loss, there's a bit of a shock and then you know, we just get back to our routines. And in my reading of, these, uh, of this reflection, this culminates in yet another question, an ethical question. If death is certain, which it is, if its time is uncertain, which it is, what should I do? How should I, how should I live in the time that remains? How can I optimize um, the remaining months, years of this life? And here we go straight into this idea we've been exploring, uh, that of uh, pr becoming a practicing human, um, finding ways to flourish on this earth, uh, living uh, an ethical life in the broadest sense. So... In this regard, um, uh, Dharma practice, um, or the Dharma, let's say, is essentially a practice. It's something to do. And it has little, if anything, to do with uh, adhering to certain metaphysical beliefs. I think they get, they, it, they, those sort of things just get in the way, frankly. When we rethink the four truths, as four tasks, we begin in this open um, sensibility of wonder, of perplexity, of what the Zen people call great doubt. The word, um, as I've mentioned, for this in Pali is dukkha parinya. Parinya is a term that's not much um, mentioned. It's not really particularly developed in Buddhist uh, theory. Uh, it's an idea that never really took off, it seems. 
But we do find a sutta uh, in the Sanyutta Nikaya. Um, all these references of these terms are found in my book, by the way. I don't have the exact reference to hand. Where the Buddha says, I will teach you... Um, uh, 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 no, sorry, it's not, that's not what he says. Someone, he poses the rhetorical question, what does it mean to comprehend? What does it mean to parinya, to fully know? And he gives a two-part answer. The definition of parinya uh, is um, the ending of greed, the ending of hatred, the ending of confusion. Which at first sight sounds a bit odd. The ending of greed, the ending of hatred, the ending of confusion. That is what it means to fully know. And then he goes on, and what is it that is to be fully known? And he answers himself and says, the five bundles, the five aggregates are to be fully known. In other words, uh, the physical, feelings, perceptions, inclinations, and consciousness. That is to be fully known. So I think this states uh, quite clearly the extent to which uh, parinya is a sensibility to the totality of our experience. This sensibility is characterized by an absence of reactivity. Remember, we've been talking of greed, hatred, delusion as reactive patterns, deeply seated reactive patterns that, to some degree, uh, are simply part of our neurobiology. We looked yesterday at uh, the reactive pattern of um, being somehow embedded in a conceptual linguistic uh, frame that informs how we perceive the world as being divided into categories of um, things, objects, persons that appear to be somehow self-sufficient, somehow intrinsically existent. So the falling away of moha, of confusion, is a letting go of that rigidity of perception. And I would argue that practices such as what is this in Zen uh, work against or erode those kinds of convictions. Likewise, um, this comprehension, this fully knowing, this embracing is also one that uh, is a, a sensibility that's not uh, inflected or determined by what I want and what I don't like. In other words, greed, hatred, in the broadest sense. It's a coming to rest uh, in, a, in an openness to life that is not um, determined by greed, by hatred, and by confusion. And of course, this doesn't mean the ending of greed, hatred, and delusion in some in some final absolute sense, where they never happen at all or ever again. Otherwise, it would be impossible to understand how this could be a practice. What it's pointing to, and we'll come on to this as we continue, is that 
non-reactivity is open and available to us in every moment. A non-reactive sensibility to life. Even in the midst of reactivity, we can be non-reactive. This is the very key to being mindful. We're aware of our, non -react of our reactions and in being consciously aware, that awareness is not reactive. Uh, as Hui Neng says in the Platform Sutra, uh, he says, even in the midst of thought, there can be no thought. So no thought or no mind, one of these Zen phrases, doesn't mean you delete these things, that they're totally absent, but rather you cultivate a sensibility in which you're aware of them, but that awareness is not predicated upon them, determined by them. All of this, I think, points to this idea of parinya, of comprehending. We also have to be careful uh, in uh, reading some of these Buddhist texts um, in that there's a certain tendency, quite a strong tendency, to phrase um, the virtues in a negative form. So the Buddha speaks of the three roots of virtue, which are non-greed, non-hatred, non-confusion. Now, obviously, this doesn't just mean uh, the absence of those things. Otherwise, um, this iPad would be um, virtuous. It has no greed, it has no hatred, it has no confusion. So clearly, it doesn't just mean absence. Absence is important to let these things die away and stop and to valorize those moments in our life when they're not uh, operative. But as my Tibetan teacher, again, Geshe Rabtan used to explain, and you find this in the Tibetan text, in the Abhidhamma, uh, the, the privative not, and not, no greed, no hatred, etc., doesn't mean just the absence of, it means uh, the opposite of. So non-greed, for example, is um, understood as something like contentment or equanimity. Non-hatred is understood as love, compassion, tolerance. Non-delusion um, or confusion is understood as, as, as clarity, intelligence, understanding. So it's important to remember uh, the, these privatives, these knots, um, are not just simple negations, but they're opening up the possibility of um, a different kind of sensibility altogether. We find this in Dzogchen, for example, with the idea of Rigpa. Rigpa too is a way of talking about the, 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 this overarching sensibility and perspective. It's sometimes called the natural state. I'm not too happy with that sort of language. But again, I think the same point is being made. Um, Rigpa is sometimes described as empty, radiant, and responsive. It's empty of self-referencing. It's radiant in the sense that it's, it's clear, it's bright. 
and it is responsive. In other words, it's not reactive, but it is open to the dukkha. The word in Tibetan is, uh, is, is actually a synonym for compassion, a natural responsiveness, a natural uh, compassion, or in other words, a concern for the suffering of the world. And, and what is to be, uh, um, in a sense, opened to in this sensibility is, uh, as I've already said, uh, the totality of our experience. We can understand this either as the five bundles or aggregates, which is, again, a kind of a, a map of the totality of experience. It doesn't just describe the body-mind. It's not just a description of our subjective experience. It includes what we see and hear and smell and taste and touch. It includes the sense organs. It includes the body. It includes how we feel about what happens. It includes how we make sense of or perceive or interpret or understand what's happening. It includes how we are predisposed to react or respond to what's happening. And it includes what we call uh, consciousness, uh, that basic uh, awareness and, and understanding of what's going on. Another way this is described in the suttas is uh, as uh, what the Buddha calls sabha, everything. And in your handout, you have the sabha sutta. I'm not going to go into it in detail, but you can read it. But the Buddha says, what do I mean by everything? Sabha. He says, the eye and the sights, the ear and the sounds, the nose and the smells, the tongue and the taste, the body and sensations, the mind and its dhamma, its objects. And he says, if anybody says there's anything more than that, then they're making an empty boast that, he says, is the totality. Not in, again, we must be very careful here, he's not making an ontological claim. He's basically saying this is the, is the, is the domain, the sphere of the practice of the Dharma. This is where the practice takes place. In the domain of what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, know. We don't have to get bothered about whether there is a divine ground of being or something else going on. This is a practice that's concerned with the immediacy of how we live in this world from moment to moment. So let's just look at some of the ways in which this comprehension... Um, I'm, trans I'm going to use comprehension as my translation for parinya. Uh, and that's how I use it in the book, too. I just use this word, which is quite literally a, a translation of it. To comprehend means to know in the round, as it were. So the practice of vipassana um, is very much another modality of cultivating this sensibility. And the practice of vipassana uh, has to do with uh, paying attention to features of our experience that we either tend to overlook or we deny or we distort. 
And so, as I'm sure you're aware, this has to do with what, what are called the three marks of being. We, 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 we deliberately and uh, repeatedly pay attention to anicca, to impermanence, to the fact that experience is constantly changing. It's not remaining the same for two consecutive moments. It's constantly shifting, moving, modifying, stopping, starting again. Experience is dukkha, which again is explicitly mentioned in this idea of knowing fully dukkha. Dukkha implies not just uh, physical or mental pain uh, or suffering, which is of course a part of it, but it also somehow suggests uh, that life is shot through with a tragic dimension. Um, you often find a, a phrase in the suttas where the Buddha says, because things are impermanent, uh, therefore they cause us suffering. Impermanence is the precondition for things being somehow uh, not lasting and thereby unable to provide us with the kind of lasting well-being that we seek. It's not so much that craving causes dukkha, but if you live in an impermanent and contingent world, dukkha just basically <coughs> goes with the territory. Uh, it, it's, it's just not on. A lasting happiness and well-being are just not the kind of things you find around here. <laughs> things break down, things fall apart. And so it's to pay attention to that, uh, to, to, to note those things. Anatta, as we spoke of last night, none of this is essentially me or mine. That doesn't mean that I don't exist. That would be an unjustified um, second-order conclusion that one could, but I think without much reason, uh, draw. We talked about this last night, so I'm not going to go into that again. But um, uh, I think we can see here that the, the pra the, 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 what we do in Vipassana retreats is basically to cultivate this comprehension, this sensibility. It's not just about believing that things are impermanent or tragic or impersonal. It's cultivating a felt sense of life being that way. And this is where the practice, I think, matures over time. Uh, the more we attune ourselves to this uh, perspective, uh, the more these, um, this sensibility takes root almost in our flesh. I have found over the years that this meditation here, certainty of death, uncertainty of time, and the question it leads to, has taken root in me. I've become perhaps, by, you know, by, by probably conventional Western standards, rather oversensitized to this. And um, uh, impermanence for me has become a, a, a very, very real thing. Um, uh, it, it, it starts to become a, a, a very vivid. Um, it leads to a sense of the life as being profoundly poignant because of its ephemerality. And just as when we meditate on death, when we do this kind of reflection, um, 
paradoxically, the more we become attuned to the certainty of death and the uncertainty of its time, the more that makes us uh, conscious and aware of the extraordinary fact that we're alive and that this isn't going to last. We take it for granted. But seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, which sound a bit sort of matter of fact, are actually quite extraordinary. And when a person loses a faculty, sight or hearing, uh, it's, uh, it's sometimes experienced as, a, as an almost intolerable loss. But while we have it, yeah, yeah, looks nice out there. <laughs> but the fact that we are able to see is, is a, a marvelous thing. It's a wondrous thing. This, um, this comprehension, however, is not just about uh, cognition. It's not just about uh, changing over time our modalities of perception, beginning to be more attuned to impermanence, more attuned to the tragic, more attuned to uh, the selfless nature of experience. It also has an affective dimension. In other words, it's not that we just we see and know things from a different perspective. We also, as part of that process, come to feel differently about life. A feeling that's registered more in the body, or we might say the heart, rather than the mind. As, we, as impermanence and particularly the idea of not-self begin to take root in us, they begin to erode um, our sense of separateness. And that sense of separateness um, functions in some way as a kind of anesthetic. Uh, it numbs us to how other beings feel. When that an anesthetic property begins to uh, fall away, we become, as it were, that much more sensitized empathetically to the suffering of others. I think this happens quite naturally once we do these practices. Of course, we can also cultivate qualities like metta, karuna, love, compassion, um, as a way to uh, reinforce that sense. But I think at heart, uh, it's the erosion of the anesthetic properties of self-attachment commitment to permanence and so on that actually make us unable to really feel uh, the extent of suffering, uh, of tragedy that is present in life. I also feel, and we'll come back to this uh, tomorrow night, that uh, this sensibility has an aesthetic dimension. In other words, when the, the fixities of perception uh, begin to fall away and become replaced by a greater sensitivity to uh, the transience of things, for example, that's not just a cold scientific, oh, things are changing, but it is also experienced aesthetically as a kind of poignancy. It's probably the best word in English.
in other words, the world somehow becomes more radiant. The world somehow becomes more, more beautiful. The world becomes, uh, in the language of the romantics, uh, more sublime. Uh, it becomes uh, something which becomes profoundly fascinating, uh, sometimes scary, too. But um, what opens up, I feel, um, in this practice is, uh, uh, well, I think the best word for it is a kind of ra a radiancy and a capacity to be fascinated, say, by an autumn leaf or uh, the color of the sun as it rises upon the branches of the trees in autumn. I mean, one can get sort of mystical, whistical about this, but the the um, I, perhaps again we need to look to East Asian culture uh, to get. I think the Japanese and the Koreans and the Chinese, in their poetry, in their brush paintings, uh, have really, I think, captured this extraordinarily well. We don't get it in Indian-based Buddhism so much. You don't get uh, a brush drawing of a broom leaning against a wall. I'm thinking of the work of Sengai, the Japanese painter, or a, fo a frog, or three persimmons, just sketch quickly with a brush, or Hakuin's marvelous self-portraits, absolutely incredible, to me have the same stature as, Van Gogh, uh, as uh, Rembrandt. And also, of course, in our own traditions, I think much of the great art of our our own culture is, to me, a, a way of teaching the Dharma. Um, when we go to a Shakespearean play, when we especially, especially the tragedies, Hamlet, Macbeth, Lear, um, this is not a kind of you know rom-com entertainment. <laughs> These are profound meditations on what it means to be human, and that is shot through with deep suffering, tragedy, and loss. And yet people flock to these things. It's not, they're not going for fun, but because these plays, these paintings of Rembrandt, or these late quartets of Beethoven, and I don't, I don't, I don't want to impose my particular tastes on you, but um, they speak to our human condition in such a way that they bring the habitual mind to a stop. And they allow us to fully know life, dukkha. So there's something about this practice of opening ourselves to dukkha that is deeply inspiring and enriching and actually makes us feel our lives, um, in, at least during those moments, flourishing from a greater depth than normal. So this practice of parinya, therefore, um, I think covers all of these um, areas. And again, this is not a task that you know, we can one day say, okay, I've done that, what's next? This is, will be with us for every moment of our lives until we die. And we can be challenged at each, you know, in each situation to refine and deepen and further cultivate this sensibility.
But this also naturally and unavoidably leads us into the second task, which is letting go of craving. Although I prefer to use this word reactivity, and I'll explain why. <coughs> we don't only embrace the situation we're in as a whole, or what we are aware of um, in the world or in our bodies, but also we embrace how we react to the situation we are in. Um, when we encounter, um, uh, let's say, another person, or when we encounter, um, you know, we're driving along in a car, whatever, whatever we're doing, our organism is continuously being impacted by um, uh, these inputs, and these inputs um, trigger um, a reaction. And so this reaction also is something that has to be very closely attended to, embraced, understood, uh, sensed, felt, because this is where we get to the very core of what the Buddha's uh, Dharma is trying to work with and heal and resolve. Because it's here we get into, the, in, 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 into that area of our lives that actually um, hinders us from being fully alive and from flourishing. So, what we'll notice um, is that we react um, in a whole wide range of ways. Sometimes we react with kindness, with generosity, uh, with wisdom, with love. Um, this again is natural to our humanity. But we also react in ways that are more destructive. Um, sometimes these are called destructive emotions. I think the Mind and Life people published a whole book on this. I think it's quite a good term, destructive emotions. And these destructive emotions, surprise, surprise, are greed and hatred and uh, delusion, although that's not really so much an emotion although I think there is an emotive quality to it um, in the sense of this constant uh, nagging uh, monologue that's saying, you know, what's in it for me? What can I get out of this? Uh, it, it often, I think, is the basis for what we might call a kind of narcissistic self-regard. Uh, we see the world purely in terms of what's in it for me. And in fact, there is a sutta where um, this, uh, where the Buddha describes clinging, clinging is usually seen as a sort of a, an extension or an outgrowth of, of, of craving, where the Buddha describes it as, um, a, as a kind of narcissistic regard. He says it's just like a young man or woman who is, a t who is pleased with their appearance when they look into a mirror or a bowl of clear water and they see their own reflection, they experience that with liking, not disliking. 
Now that's the myth of Narcissus, actually. Um, and uh, likewise, uh, he goes on to say, when uh, we consider, when we encounter the five aggregates, which is shorthand for the totality of our experience, they seem to reflect back an image of ourselves. We see the world uh, as somehow uh, only really uh, as a reflection of ourselves, which is, high, which is you know, highly egotistic, but that's, I think, how the human uh, beings have evolved uh, to, 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 to make the primacy of our life about the survival of me and the survival of my kin, my relatives, my group, my community. Uh, that's how we've got to where we are now. And yet these uh, survival drives have become destructive. They're past their sell-by date, but because they're so embedded in our neurobiology, we can't just switch them off. Sometimes we w I wish I could when I'm meditating. Isn't there an off switch somewhere? We can just close this down. But there's not. It just keeps on going. <laughs> so we need to differentiate, therefore, between um, those reactions which can be cultivated in a positive way um, and those reactions which uh, tend to um, reactivity. So just to give you a sense of, of, of uh, the language I'm using here, and, and it is not traditional Buddhist uh, terminology, um, the, the organism encounters an environment. It comes into touch or contact through the senses, through the mind, with what's going on. By environment, by the way, we don't just mean the external environment. We also mean the internal environment. We're also impacted by thoughts and emotions and fears and worries, memories that also come to us in the same way that a sound or a smell or a taste or a tactile sensation comes to us. It touches us. The word is pusati. We get pasa, usually translated as contact, but it's connected to the word, the verb pusati, which means to touch. We're constantly being touched. We're being touched by thoughts, by impressions, by sensations. And those impressions, sensations, whatever touches us, lead us immediately to feel a certain way about them. Vedana. I'm going to go into this more tomorrow morning. And that Vedana, as we see in the 12 links of dependent origination, for example, is the precondition for reactivity. Now the reason that the Buddha focuses on uh, greed, hatred, delusion as the consequence of feeling is because his teaching is a therapy. Feelings, of course, can also generate wisdom, love, and other very positive responses. But as a therapy, the Dharma is concerned with working with those destructive emotions that inhibit our flourishing as persons and as communities. So we can talk of reaction or uh, as the sort of basic uh, phenomenon that is going on as a result of coming into contact with an environment, feeling a certain way and reacting. 
And it's quite close, actually, to the word sankara, um, which we'll look at tomorrow. I translate it as inclination. We, it, we are automatically inclined to respond or react to what is going on. It's a given. We don't choose it, necessarily. It happens to us. And we need, in, the, in our practice, to learn to differentiate between um, reactions that can be developed and cultivated as uh, wise and loving responses to life, in which case they fall into the fourth task of cultivating the Eightfold Path, and reactions that uh, are prone to become reactivity. In other words, as we already mentioned, um, these are characterized by being compulsive, repetitive, disturbing, um, neurotic. They don't, they're very active, but they don't actually get us anywhere. They just keep turning on the same axis and bringing us back to where we began, and then we look for fresh stimulation to get what we want, get rid of what we don't like, and the cycle just goes round and round and round. And that is rebirth, really. That's at the core of what is meant by rebirth. Rebirth is repetition. Sometimes people want to you know, interpret rebirth as a symbol for how every moment we are reborn, but that's actually missing the point. That is, of course, true, if you want to look at it that way. But we have to remember that Punga Bhava, again becoming, rebirth, is the problem to be resolved. It's not just a description that life is constantly leading us to be born in new situations. That's not what it means at all. Uh, rebirth is the problem. Uh, rep and what that boils down to is uh, repetitive, habitual, compulsive behavior that starts very explicitly uh, within, our, uh, within our minds, within our inner experience. I think uh, reactivity, um, this, this use of uh, reactivity rather than craving, um, also I feel is uh, justified by the Buddha's metaphor of fire. Uh, we looked at this in the discussion last night. The, um, the second, uh, sorry, the third discourse that Gautama is uh, supposed to have given is called the Discourse on Fire, or the Fire Sermon, um, where he says the world is burning. The eyes are burning, the ears are burning, the nose, tongue, body, mind. In other words, he says everything, Sabha, is burning. The, 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 our experience is one that is on fire. On fire with what? On fire with greed, on fire with hatred, on fire with confusion. Now the image of fire is very much, I think, an image of something that flares up when a match, for example, strikes a matchbox, or in the Buddha's day it would have prob probably been two pieces of flint, that would strike together and create a spark, which creates a flame. And I think that's a very good metaphor for reactivity. It's something that's sparked, that triggers, and that flares up. And we can see that, I think, very vividly when we quieten our mind 
and notice this process going on. Uh, that, I think, again, is one of the great uh, uh, gifts of being mindful, is that we start noticing these processes uh, flaring up within us, um, rather than not really catching them at all and just finding us, ourselves suddenly feeling really angry or really lustful or really uh, sort of full of our own ego. But we rarely catch it at its inception. And I think as we become more still, more focused, more aware, we become more and more able to catch these reactions as they are triggered. We get closer and closer to the source. And the closer we get to the source, the greater our ability not to get caught up in them. Uh, Shanti Deva has an image here. He says that these reactions are like poisoned arrows. Uh, the Buddha uses the same metaphor. The, 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 the arrow, you know, the parable of the arrow, the man lying on the ground, bleeding to death, struck by a poisoned arrow. The poisoned arrow is tangha. It's craving. It's a metaphor for craving. Or, in my language, a metaphor for reactivity. Now, the... Um, image in Shantideva is that once the arrow has penetrated your skin, the poison rapidly spreads through the um, blood, uh, through the circulation of the blood. And once it's done that, it's actually quite difficult to do much about it. The closer we can catch these reactions at their inception, the easier it is to let them go. So now we come to the task itself, letting go of reactivity. Now what does that mean, to let go of, let's say, a moment of hatred? Um, give you a recent example. When I first heard about these attacks in Paris, um, I noticed, uh, again, I didn't choose to think this, um, but there rose in my mind a thought, which wasn't just a thought, it was also, I could feel it in my chest, a tightening in my chest, a heating up in my chest, um, more or less saying, let's bomb the shit out of those people. I even saw myself for a fleeting moment in an F-16 fighter with Hellfire missiles. <laughs> now, I'm not proud of that. Um, uh, but I don't feel guilty about it either. It's simply a natural reaction given these conditions and that, you know, is what came up. I don't have to then uh, feel that I'm a bad Buddhist. I think this is really a crucial thing in Buddhist ethics is that uh, these reactions are not morally a good or bad. They only become in a sense, uh, they only enter in the sphere of morals when we assent to them. When we say, yeah, I am going to get into a F-16 jet. Yeah, let's go, let's go for it. Or let's support my government who wants to do it. To actually go with that reaction and consciously assent to it. As long as it's just a reaction, which is what it is, it's arisen out of causes and conditions, I have the freedom um, 
to simply say, oh, that's interesting. This is the reaction that's coming up. Um, and to just allow it to fade away. To not, in other words, do anything about it other than just be present to it in a sphere of awareness. And again, this is, I think, the very core of the Buddha's first discourse is the phrase, whatever is subject to arising is subject to ceasing. This is what Kondanya, one of the five ascetics, one of the audience of this discourse, uh, is said to have declared when his Dharma eye opened. He was the one of the five who got what the Buddha was saying. And his insight was whatever is the nature of arising is of the nature of ceasing. Or in more simple English, whatever arises, ceases. And remember, the word arise in that phrase is samudaya, and the word cease is niroda. Samudaya uh, is often translated as origin, the origin of suffering, but actually it means what arises. And we know from the third noble truth that what ceases, um, niroda, is tangha, reactivity, which suggests very strongly that... Um, uh, the second noble truth is actually about the arising of reactivity. It's not about the arising of suffering. Again, this is, I go into this in some detail in my book. This is very unorthodox, but I think there is a strong case for understanding uh, the second task as the letting go of reactivity, the letting go of what arises, samudaya, and Letting go of it means not identifying with it, not fueling it, not feeding it, not reinforcing it, but just seeing it for what it is. It's simply a reaction, a play of the mind that's emerged out of conditions and if left to its own devices, will fade away. doesn't mean it won't start up again, but that's not... The point, the point in the moment is not to buy into its story, not to get caught up in it, not to get overwhelmed by it, but to just observe it for what it is and let it go. Shantideva says, be like a piece of wood, remain like a log, don't let yourself get caught up in it. And that's where the freedom lies. It lies not in, in suppressing or denying or deleting or you know, abandoning these things, as is sometimes translated. This word, uh, letting go, you'll often see in English language translations as abandon. Craving is to be abandoned. I think that's way too strong. It's, it's difficult to see how it's not a kind of aversion. Uh, precisely what it is we're trying to let go of. You know, hating, disliking, uh, trying to get rid of. So letting go, I think, is a better translation, but even there, it suggests a degree of agency. You know, I'm going to let it go. It might actually be better to say, let it be. In other words, just allow it to do its thing in the open, non-reactive space of parinya 
comprehension. Remember, comprehension is absence of greed, absence of hatred, absence of confusion. And letting go or letting be is just allowing whatever greed, hatred, delusion arise to come to a stop. And um, the coming to a stop um, is what one then uh, pays close attention to. One beholds that stopping in that moment um, is uh, nirvana. Nirvana, remember, also is absence of greed, absence of hatred, absence of confusion. In fact, what's very striking is that um, the, the way the Buddha defines comprehension, the first task, is also exactly the same phrase that he uses to define three other terms. Nirvana, the unconditioned, and the deathless. These are all defined in the same way. And um, so what all of these point to is um, a valorizing of a non-reactive space of mind that we cultivate, both as a modality of knowing or comprehending or embracing, non-reactive embracing, and also as the experience of non-reactivity itself, which is also synonymous with what the Buddha calls em em emptiness. Em emptiness in the early suttas uh, has to do with the emptiness of the asavas, which again is another phrase for uh, the kilesas, uh, the react reactivity, tangha. Emptiness is that non-reactive space in which we can dwell um, we're going to come on to this in, in the, in this evening in the talk. Um, he talks of dwelling in emptiness in the same way he talks of dwelling in metta, in karuna, vihara, viharati, to dwell. It's not, emptiness is not something you come to know or understand, or you might do that too, but the term he uses is dwelling. We have to learn in this practice, to dwell, to live, to abide in this sensibility that we cultivate through the practice. We'll stop here. Um, and we'll carry on this evening looking at, the, um, uh, at this, uh, this idea of non-reactivity as emptiness, as nirvana, and as the... Um, the the source or the fount from whence the path unfolds the eightfold path unfolds we have half an hour of walking or tea drinking or whatever we want to do